Morning. Grace and peace to you guys. It's great to be here. I'm having a uh, rough morning, though. And it elicits no sympathy from you guys at all, it sounds like. <laughs> it did from Josh. I, uh, I, I got up this morning, went over my sermon as I normally do, uh, got everything ready, drove about an hour to get here, parked in your parking lot right there, and, uh, and got out. I did have one of, my, one of my journals I had sitting down there, one of my small journals. What I didn't have, though, is my backpack, which had my iPad, which had my sermon on it, and my Bible. And for, thank God for technology, though, right? So I walked in, and Josh saw me, and I was like, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I can get my sermon on my phone. And he said, oh, no, we can print it. So we went and we printed it, and I got it. So I'm thankful for that. But you know what? I, I, I was praying, and my wife said this to me as well. She said, we prayed. You just got to preach without your notes. And I said, you're right. Like, I, like, it might not be the best sermon that was ever done, and I'd probably go home feeling upset about it in some way, but... God would have honored the reading and speaking of his word, even if I didn't have my notes, right? Um, but I'm thankful for notes. It'll help. But this is not my Bible, so I feel really uncomfortable up here. I think Ephesians will be in the same place. Um, so, so let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll read it in just a moment. But I do just want to say it was a joy to uh, be here this morning and walk in, and right away, I recognized a familiar uh, face. I'm looking at Dave back here, and uh, it was just—it was—it was great to see you, brother. We took a little selfie. We have a, a close friend that Dave was at our church at Brandywine Grace on the day that Matt, a coworker of his, who had recently got saved through the ministry uh, of Brandywine Grace and and some outreach ministries, and he was being baptized on a Sunday morning, and so Dave came to observe that. And uh, told us where he lived. And I said, oh, no, you got to meet Josh Hurst. There's the Harvard Network Church up there. Shows up the next week here with all of you guys. And I think if, I'm, if I heard you right, just recently became a member or a partner here. At, or in the, class in the class today. He's in the class today. So I, I, I thank God for that. I, I thank God that, that you're connected here. And, and through somehow through the ministry of Brandywine Grace Church, a brother finds himself here. So that really brings me joy, David. It was real good to see you. The Bible. I can tell you guys love the Bible. I can tell just by the way you did the liturgy. I've known Josh for a while now. I know that you guys place a high priority on God's Word. Aren't you thankful for God's Word? If, if, if there's no Word of God Preachers have nothing to say. You don't need a comedian today. You don't need someone just to stand up here and uh, engage you a little bit. What you need more than anything else, what I need is the Word of God. And God has, has given us His Word. He's, he's left us His Word. He loves to speak to us. God, do you believe that this morning, that God wants to speak to you? He wants to speak to you. He wants to speak to us, and he speaks to us by the Holy Spirit applying the truth of God's word to our hearts. And he's left us so many metaphors, right? You look, so, so many different genres contained in the scriptures, so many different metaphors that the word uses to describe the Christian life. And we're going to hit one of those metaphors today in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 4, though, we know that the Christian life is described as a walk. So we're told to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But in other places, and it's not like the Bible writers are schizophrenic, but the, 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 the Christian life is not described as a walk. Paul describes it as a race. Like we're running this race. The Christian life is described as trusting. It's one of, of believing and trusting God. The Christian life is described as belief. It's described as 
turning. The Christian life is one of continual turning, one of continual repentance. And our text today, which we're going to read in just a moment, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, the heading there that I see in my Bible is, and it's the same in this one too, which is good, um, the whole armor of God. This is, this is a section of Scripture that speaks about spiritual warfare. And so you might say this way, say it this way, the Christian life is described as a fight. Paul said it to Timothy this way, fight the good fight of the faith. So the Christian life is a fight. It's one of the metaphors we have for living the Christian life is fighting. The fight's present because the very existence of the command to put on the full armor of God means that another choice besides obedience is quite possible. The Christian life. Do you know this to be true? Nod your head if you know this to be true. That the Christian life is fighting, is one of resistance, is one of restraint is one of discipline. It's one of fighting. The language that Paul uses in this section of Scripture is so vivid, so clear. Has anybody experienced any resistance in their life this week? If you did, you should be encouraged because it's an indicator that the Spirit of God, that you're in Christ and the Spirit of God is alive within you and you're resisting the flesh, the world, Satan, C.S. Lewis said, for any happiness, even in this world, quite a lot of restraint is going to be necessary. So there's a lot of restraining, a lot of resisting, if you're going to fight the good fight of the faith. If you've never really tried to resist temptation, you don't really know what I'm talking about. But if you have, tried to resist temptation, you know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside of us till we try to resist it, till we try to fight it. And Jesus, because Jesus was the only man who never once yielded to temptation is the only one who knows fully what temptation really means. No one felt that more than Jesus. That's why the scripture tells us that he can sympathize with us in our weakness. The person in this room who is right now most determined on and set on loving Jesus is probably most aware of an intense resistance in their soul. That's what it means to be Christ-like. So as we turn to the text, let's turn there with some questions. Are you feeling any resistance within? Does the truth that we live in Christ behind enemy lines, in enemy territories, as in enemy territory, as pilgrims journeying towards heaven, is that something you can nod your head in recognition of? Do you see evidence of resist and restraint in your life? Do you feel the presence of, the, of a fight? How's the fight going in your life? If the Christian life is a fight, then we should ask the question, do I know how to fight? Let's look at Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes to the Ephesians in closing his letter, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, 
This is where I'm going to focus my time. Verses 13 and 14. But Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would warm our hearts, and that you would mold our wills according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We used to, on our days off, uh, we have four kids and they've gotten older now. Some of them are in college. Uh, But we regularly went to the Philadelphia Zoo. You guys go to the Philadelphia Zoo? Love the Philadelphia Zoo. And I remember one particular day we were there at the Philadelphia Zoo and I had this, uh, uh, it was a great time like we always did, but I was standing in front of the rhinoceros area, you know where that is. And it was one of those great moments, you know, because you never know what's going to happen. If you go, you show up at the zoo, you don't know where the lions are going to be outside or where they're going to be inside. But it was one of those moments where the rhinoceros was like, like, here's the glass and here's the rhinoceros. And so I got all these, uh, my kids with me, and, and, and there's a huge crowd gathered, and we're just standing, like, and we're looking. We're like feet, inches away from a 5,000-pound beast, and we're laughing. And I had this moment where my mind started to wander. We're smiling. We're taking photos. Kids are giggling when the rhinoceros urinates. <laughs> he snorts. And I was thinking about what I wanted for dinner. But I thought about how vastly this situation could be if not for a retaining pit, a retaining wall, and an electric fence. We were so carefree. Probably some of my boys teasing the rhinoceros. And I thought, man, how different this scenario would be if that wall came down. If he came crashing through and ended up on the other side. If he broke from captivity and started wreaking havoc on all the the little families at the zoo for a nice day out. Few feet from a dangerous creature, smiling, laughing, snapping photos, daydreaming about cheesesteaks. Remove the wall, though, and it's a completely different reality. It's urgency, it's screaming, it's leading, it's yelling, it's leadership, it's intense so those were my thoughts and then I went ahead and had a cheesesteak I got a serious challenge in front of me though this morning and it's the serious challenge that I have in the next few minutes is I've got to try and convince you and I've got to try to reconvince myself because I've been convinced this week that what God has called us to in here in this passage is serious, it's dangerous, it demands our attention, and that the Spirit of God wants to sharpen your senses for the good fight of the faith that He's called you into. Because we're so, friends, I know this is true for you, I don't know many of you, but I know this is theologically true. We, are, we tend to be dull to spiritual things. We tend to be dull to important things. And sometimes what we need is for the Spirit of God to shake us out of our dullness. Is anybody with me on that? Does anybody ever feel dull in your spiritual affections? I do. We need to be so wowed by the grace of God, by the grace that, man, is there a better book to display the grace of God in Jesus to sinners? The book of Ephesians is a phenomenon. I don't know how, you, how long you guys have been preaching through it, but it's one of my favorites. 
We need to be so wowed at the grace of God that Paul has preached to the Ephesians. What it does in our lives, how it disrupts our lives, transforms our lives. And then what it demands in response so that when we come in on Sunday morning, we're sitting on the edge of our seats waiting to hear what God wants to speak to us. That's the kind of intensity it seems like Paul is calling for here at the end of this letter. And I'm concerned for myself. I say this regularly to my church back home. I'm concerned about the level of comfort that I see in our Christian walk. That I think too many Christians are just too comfortable. And we live in this material world with this unconscious disbelief in the reality of what Paul's talking about here. Spiritual things. We're like Christians on Novocaine. Our senses have been dulled for radical living. Our senses have been dulled, numbed to wholehearted devotion, running hard after Jesus for being more satisfied in Him than we are in anything else. Dulled to seeing and admiring the beauty of Christ for fighting, for believing, for being. For remembering that at the moment we decided to follow Jesus, we joined a fight club. We entered into a war with God's enemies. Do you believe that this morning? That's what Paul's talking about. And sometimes I wish Satan would roar. Because then I might be appropriately shaken. But I can give just enough thought to what I'm preaching this morning. To sitting and listening to a sermon like this. Until I can get to my Instagram. Until I can get to lunch. Until I can find out what the eagles are doing. But sometimes I wish that I could see my danger. I think Paul wants us to see it this morning. That we're in this great battle. That we're in a fight to live for Jesus. And some of my favorite books, Tolkien wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He, he, he has a great line in The, the Hobbit. Where the, Hobbit, the hobbits are trying to, to get to, to the dragon so that they can recover their stolen treasure. There's a great line in it. It says, Then the dwarves forgot their joy and their confident boasts of a moment before, and they cowered down in fright. Smog, who is the dragon, was still to be reckoned with. It does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. Won't do, Trinity, to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. It won't do to treat the Christian life like a walk through a zoo where everything that's dangerous is behind glass panels. It won't do to not take seriously what God's Word says here about putting on the whole armor of God. There's a battle plan out in the heavens and here on earth between those who align themselves with the devil and those who align themselves with Christ. Because of this, Paul is calling the Ephesians to arms. This is Paul's emotional call to action. It's meant to arouse us. It's meant to stir us. It's meant to agitate us. It's meant to get something done in us. And amidst this intense action that we see taking place here at the end of Ephesians, there's one word that seems to summarize all that we must do as it, relate, as it relates to putting on the armor of God and, in, and engaging in spiritual warfare. And it's a word, I think you could summarize the, 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 the claim of this text in one word. There's a lot of action taking place here. This is very different than the first part of Ephesians because in this part of Ephesians, Paul is giving the Ephesians a lot of commands. A lot of things to do. This this section here is overwhelming. If you count up the verbs, there's 19 of them in 10 verses. 
There's to do. This is not like what he did, though, in the first three chapters, where you, some theologians would say maybe one, maybe two imperatives for you in the first three chapters of Ephesians. It's not about what you do. It's all about what God has done for you. But then he turns gears, right? He changes gears in these last three chapters. And in this last section, he gives us, he gives Christians so many things to do. But in all of the verbs that he lists, like be strong, put on, wrestle, take up, fasten, extinguish, pray, keep alert, persevere, he's he's saying all kinds of things. One of them seems to pop off the page. He says to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then in verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, what's it say, church? Stand. And then in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, then in case you didn't get it, he says, he begins verse 14, stand firm. What's Paul's main point? You got to stand. Got to stand. If you're in Christ, this is what you're doing. You are standing. Hold your ground. Hold the line. This is what Paul is saying. No reserve, no retreat, no falling away. This is not about this. You, you, some people are into this stuff. Like, like I'm into this stuff. Like fight language is something that I'm really, like I'm really motivated by it. But some people you start talking about fight and it's like, don't, oh no, like I'm, I'm, I don't like this kind of stuff. I don't want to be talking about the Christian life as fight. Go back to Ephesians 1 through 3, not Ephesians 6. I don't like Ephesians 6. It seems to put too much pressure on me. But, but let me just highlight for you what Paul is saying here, when he says stand, this is not glorious. <laughs> this, is, this is, if you like football and you like football analogies, this is not the glorious position. The standers don't score touchdowns. This is not for running backs. This is not for wide receivers. On the football field of the Christian life, Christians, it appears, play defense. You just stand. Defensive linemen. Not glorious. The only time you ever hear about defensive linemen, or or I should say even offensive linemen, the only time you ever hear about it, if your name gets called, it's because you made a mistake. It's because you missed your block. I'm looking at some of the guys that are laughing the hardest here are probably all old offensive linemen. They know. Your name doesn't get called. You don't get your name in the lights. You don't score any touchdowns. It's just hold the line. Do your job. It's not about victory or defeat. It's about holding the gospel ground that Christ purchased for you. It's been won for us by Jesus. We gotta hold that ground. Where, so what what do you gotta hold? Well, it's the ground around you. You gotta hold it. That's what God is calling us to. Paul's like a military general here. He's like, he's coming up and down the line. He's just preparing the troops. He's saying, get up. And it's almost like maybe they've just suffered an ambush. Maybe they've just suffered uh, the attack of the enemy. And he's just, well, he's like a general walking down the line. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. Get ready. There's another attack coming. There's another front coming. There's another, there's going to be another push. Get up. Get your breastplate switched over here. Get your shield up. Get ready. Just hold your ground. Hold your ground. Hold your ground. Don't retreat. Don't run away. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. This is what Paul is doing. Don't give up the ground. The ground is precious because the ground is the ground that Christ has purchased for you and placed you there in his goodness and in his mercy. And he's saying, don't give up that gospel ground. Stand. 
The Marines say Semper Fidelis, always faithful. We might say our motto is Solidariter, stand. It's a Latin word for stand. It's, it's where we get the word solidarity. It's where we get the word soldier. So it's no giving of ground. It's no abandonment. It's no disloyalty. It's no betrayal. It's standing. We may feel weak, but we stand. We may feel discouraged, but we stand. We may feel disappointed. We may be overwhelmed. But what God is calling us to do is to stand. The hope of every Christian is that when your life is spent, when God calls you home as it as as a description of that like when your life comes to an end like the brother that we just heard about has gone home to be with Jesus the hope of every Christian is that we'll be found that God will pick us up on the battlefield where we've been standing in light of his mercy and his kindness and his goodness to us he ushers us into his kingdom. And we hear that well done, good and faithful servant. You did it. You stood. You held firm. So this is what we're called to, to stand. If you take anything away from the passage, from this section today, it's that you're called to stand. You just remember one word, stand. You can journal that. It's easy. Stand. <laughs> you know, picture somebody standing. That's, that's, that's what you're doing. It's not glorious. But how do we do it? And I think we can shed some light. Let's take a few minutes to look at the rest of this section of Scripture. How do we stand? How do we do that? Paul tells us, that tells the Ephesians, that the way we stand, finally be strong in the Lord, he says, and in the strength of his might, and we stand by, therefore, he said in verse 13, by putting on the full armor of God. So let's just take a little a bit of time to, to look at this. How do we stand? We put on the equipment God has given us. So here's the point. All that you need to stand, to be strong in the Lord, God has given you. You got it. You don't need anything more. God is telling us that everything we need to stand firm, He has given to us. The question is, will you use what he's given you? The question is, will we use what God has given to us? We must hold the ground with the weapons God has given us. He's equipped us to hold gospel ground. He's equipped us to stand. What has he given us? A full set of armor. So I want to highlight this for a, a moment. In verse 11 and verse 13, he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. So he's given us this whole armor, this full armor, a full protective covering. The complete arm and equipment of a warrior is what he has given to us. Now, a lot of people have said that, uh, that, that Paul wrote this from prison and was constantly looking at the soldier and everything that he had on him and then was making a description of these things as he talked about putting on the full armor of God. I'm not sure that that's true. Uh, I, he was in prison, I'm not saying that. Um, what I mean is, the person that was guarding the prison doesn't have the type of armor on that this person does. This person is on the battlefield. So it's kind of like, you know, if you, nobody goes to the mall anymore, so this is a bad illustration, but you've been to the mall maybe. Um, you know, a, a, a mall cop is equipped differently than a, a uh, and I'm sorry if, I, if you're a mall cop. I, I, didn't, I don't want to offend you in any way. But I, I am saying this, that you're dressed differently than a Navy SEAL is when they jump off the boat, the frog boat, and, and seek to take conquest. You see what I'm saying? 
So, so the, the, the person that was guarding Paul was probably dressed more like a mall security person than they are like a Navy SEAL. So how are you equipped? You, in Christ, have been equipped more like a Navy SEAL than you have been with a, a, a lack of equipment. He has given us his, a full set of armor. I served in the United States Air Force right when I got out of high school. And when we, when we, when we joined the Air Force, they shaved everybody's head, um, which I believe it or not, was actually a painful moment for me because at 17 uh, years old, I had a lot of blonde hair. I loved it too much. God took it from me. Uh, but but I, we went through this line. We got our heads shaved, and we were in civilian clothes, and then we all went through a line where we got uh, our, all of our military issue stuff. We were equipped with it. So you got in the line for your uniform. You got in the line for your water bottle. You got in the line for everything, and everybody just kind of picked from this stuff. But it was real generic. Like, we were just in basic training. We were nobody special. We just got like the basic, basic fatigues, basic web belt, basic canteen, you know, uh, just all the basic, basic uh, stuff to put your dirty clothes in, like a laundry bag. It was, it was very basic. But I learned after getting through basic training, I showed up at the base and there were people who had like some really the stuff that you really wanted. <laughs> like, like, this, like if you were in special forces... They got the flight suits. They got the Ray-Ban aviator glasses. They got like the, the jump boots. They got them like the real shiny jump boots. Ours were like just these old boots. You know, they, they had the good stuff. And I think sometimes we can think that that's the way the Christian life is. That, you know, there's, there's the people at Trinity that are real serious about Jesus. The, the, they, they really want to live on mission. They're going to Spain to make disciples. Like they're, like, they're on the front lines. They get all the great equipment. They get all the equipment. But then, you know, I'm just, I just, I'm just serve on the greeters team. You know, I just get what you need for that. We can take pride in this. And I think a lot of, a lot of people have looked at this passage of Scripture and twisted it. There's no special forces for the seriously supernatural bunch at Trinity Community. You're either in Christ or you're not. And if you're in Christ, you get it all. All the armor. It's not like... uh, You know, it's not like I'm a community group leader. I need all the equipment. But you go on over there in the line for taking care of the sick and they'll give you what you need. But I, I got to get it all. It's not like that. If you're in Christ, you've got everything you need to stand firm. And you've got the weapons of warrior. So we got a full set of armor. And then I want you to notice something else. It's the whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. I'm emphasizing of God. We emphasized whole armor. Now I'm emphasizing of God. It's God's armor. I want, you got to see something. i got to read, read you something. Because Paul was definitely influenced by Isaiah, which we spent a lot of time in this morning in the liturgy. Check this out. Uh, Isaiah 11. I'm just going to read you two verses from Isaiah 11. This is God's armor. It says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, this is God, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Then listen to this. Isaiah 59. You heard some of that armor language, right? Listen to this one. This is a new Bible, man. i got to give this away so somebody can use it. 
Hopefully, Josh, this isn't like your really well-used Bible that you gave me. I got, I got, I got, I got concerns for your senior pastor. They say you can, they say you can learn a lot about a person if their Bible's totally falling apart. Then their life is probably pretty good. But this Bible needs to be given away to somebody. 59, verses 16 and 17. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. You hear it, right? You hear. That's the language that Paul is using. Paul is urging us to take up the armor of God. The armor that God wears in his efforts to fight for his people, to fight for and establish truth and righteousness. So, so there's this tension we feel that, that God fights for us, but, but that we're also called to fight too. There's no getting around the fact that we're called to respond, that grace requires a response. God acts upon us. He saves us in grace. But then we respond to that grace and we engage in the good fight of the faith. The Ephesians were tempted to rely on traditional magical objects. We have the same temptation to put our confidence in things other than God for the, the fight that he's called us to as Christians. Am I alone in this? When you struggle, when, you, when something disappointing happens, when you start to deal with a challenge in life, and everybody is, everybody's dealing with something. When you deal with that challenge, you, you have this, this temptation. Will I put my trust and confidence in Christ and all, he's, all I have in Christ? Or will I put my confidence in something else? There's all kinds of things that we're tempted to put our confidence in. Put our confidence in money, security, home, family, marriage. You can put your confidence in thousands of things. You can be tempted to do that instead of putting your confidence in Christ. Where do you go? When you feel like life has dealt you a difficult blow, where do you run? Where do you go? Where do you run for security? Where do you run for refuge? Some people run to, to drugs. Some people run to alcohol. And that sounds so bad, right? I, I got, some people run to food. That seems safer. But but as Christians, we are called to run to Christ. He's our refuge. He's our security. What gives you a sense of control? Is it trusting in God or is it something else? He's given us the, his whole armor that we might trust him. One of the things we've been talking about a lot as a church is trying to reinterpret our troubles and our trials, trying to reinterpret them as an opportunity to rely on God. Easier said than done. We have this armor, though, and it's God's armor. And he's called us to use it. The devil's power is real and strong. I mean, Paul's highlighting it here in the end of Ephesians. The spiritual forces that he's talking about. Any method that we use apart from Christ, though, I don't think strikes fear in Satan. I don't think it does. I don't think Satan's scared of you. I do think he's scared of a of a Christian clothed in the armor of God. So we give no opportunity to the devil. We give no foothold to the devil. We stand firm. What? By, by remembering that we have the a full armor given to us and it's God's armor that has been given to us. 
We don't stand in our own strength. We stand in the strength that he provides. Let's end uh, just by looking here at the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. I'll end here and just give me a few more minutes. Verse 14, he says, We should take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Let's just make a few comments about the belt of truth. A belt is extremely important in battle because a belt is what holds all of your gear on you. I remember once my brother, who ended up being a a, a good athlete and a good football player, um, went out to the middle school football team, and when he went through the line to get his gear distributed to him, he was like, he showed up for football camp like two days late, so all the good gear was handed out, and he got all of his gear, but they didn't have a belt, and the pants they gave him were too big. So I remember my dad and I picking him up from football practice and watching the last five minutes of practice, and, and, and just, we still hilariously mock him to this day. But he was, he had no belt. He was trying to play football with no belt. And so he was literally, like his pants were like falling and he was constantly trying to hold his pants up and do his job. You get the picture, right? You can't do that. You got to cinch the belt up. I admire him for lasting through the whole practice without a belt. Too many Christians are trying to fight the good fight of the faith, engaging in spiritual warfare, forgetting, though, that the belt of truth must be fastened. What are we to take from this? Truth performs a crucial function in spiritual warfare. This is why it's so important. You probably use this language over and over here, too. We talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves. Why? Because the gospel is truth. And so when you are, are struggling with temptation, and, it's, and it's, it's surprising how often we forget this. The other day, I was re- rehearsing and, and going over my notes in preparation for this sermon, and I was, bat- I was struggling over some things that I was dealing with. So I was taking my daily walk with the, the Lord, and I was praying over some things. I was dealing with some temptation. I was dealing with uh, a criticism that I'd received, and I felt like my mind, I was off just thinking through all these things, thinking through my response, how I, how I would deal with this. And I felt so, you ever feel this way? I felt so distant from the Lord. I felt so churned up in my soul, and I felt like I was sinning. And my heart wasn't wholly given to the Lord. And I just felt like my life, you guys seem like a really nice group of people. So I'll restrain from using the kind of language that I might use around home. I don't want to get in trouble and never be invited back. I wasn't going to like curse or anything. But um, I won't, you get the way I was feeling. Has anybody ever felt that way? Do you know what I'm talking about? And I felt like I was like, I didn't know what to do. Like, I just was stuck here. What can I do? And then I felt like the Lord, you ever feel like the Lord speaks to you, but it's almost like he does it as a loving father with a smile on his face, but he's almost laughing at you, not mocking you, but just like Kenny, like Jesus said to the disciples, oh, you're going to, you're going to stand with me to the end, right? You know, he, he ironically said things to them, sarcastic. I feel God speak to me sometimes like that. And I felt like the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and said, Kenny, what are you preaching on this Sunday at Trinity Community? I thought you were preaching on your arsenal. I thought you were preaching on the armor of God. I thought you were preaching on standing firm. And I said, well, God, you're right. I am preaching on those things. And he said, well, Kenny, bell the truth. What's the truth here? Well, I'm... I'm so concerned about someone else's opinion of me. It's not that their opinion shouldn't matter, but the belt of truth says God's opinion of me is that he loved me so much that he gave his son to die for me. Got to get that straight. 
Got to get that belt on. Otherwise, you're running around through life trying to hold your pants up like a football player without a belt. Satan is so good at blackmailing Christians. You know how he does it? Through lies. Some of you, maybe you sinned last night. Sinned over the weekend. You came into church today and you're like, man, if anybody knew this. Oh, man. i got to put myself on probation with God this week. i got to do better. You need the belt of truth. You need to know. We're going to celebrate communion. You need to know what we sing about this morning. His mercy is more. You believe that? That's the belt of truth. All right, let's move just quickly to the breastplate of righteousness. I'm, I'm, ra- I'm racing towards the end here, Josh. Breastplate of righteousness. What are we talking about? Well, first of all, the breastplate is what you put on to protect your vital organs. So if it gets out, of sh- you shift it. You know, if, it's, if you go into battle and your breastplate is shifted too far one way, then you expose yourself, right? You expose your lungs and, and arrows through the lungs. <laughs> He was a good guy, you know, but it's over. Spear through the heart. Going to see Jesus. So what's Paul talking about here? Is he talking about Christ's righteousness or our righteousness? I don't think we know. I know that it must include God's righteousness. It has to include that. It's God's righteousness freely given to those who truly trust and believe in Jesus. God made him who was no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become, the scripture says, the righteousness of God. It's this irrevocable, imputed righteousness. If you don't have the righteousness of Christ, nothing will save you. But if you have it, Josh hinted at this. You're safe for eternity. You're secure. Amen? Amen. If you're in Christ, you're safe. But we can't leave, Paul is saying, you can't leave your breastplate of righteousness on the ground. I ran into battle today without my sword. I showed up at a church to preach without my Bible. I mean, like a pastor without a Bible. What good is that? That's how I showed up. God's merciful. You can't run into spiritual warfare, though, and say, oh, I left my breastplate of righteousness at home. I'll just use my hands, I guess. That ain't going to work. Chapter 4, 24, Paul said, put on the new self created at the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. There's a powerful connection there to what he said in chapter 4 to what he's saying now. Putting on the breastplate means to act righteously in all of our daily dealings with God. The righteousness of God protects a believer's heart against the assaults of Satan. Now, I imagine one of your pastors is going to pick up in this section next week or at some point. What we're not going to do is get preoccupied, like this preoccupying fascination with the armor. How do you stand firm? Yeah, you know, and then talking about all those things we can learn from this passage. What Paul's saying is, in all of the armor, it's, it's a reminder that you've got to stay close to Jesus. You've got to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. If you live with a preoccupying fascination with Jesus, you will stand firm. If you live with a preoccupying fascination with spiritual warfare, but take your eyes off of Jesus, you won't. You're going to take some wounds. It's to fix our eyes and our gaze on Jesus. Standing firm is not never falling. It's not never failing. It's not never dropping your armor. Standing includes knowing what to do even when you have failed. And we're all going to fail. 
We're, gonna, we're going to, to not live perfectly before Christ. Standing is never this self-centered morality that focuses on our self-effort. It's a, it's, a, it's a focusing on Christ so that when we do fall, when we do fail, we know where to go and, and, and how to receive the encouragement that only comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? When we go to Christ for forgiveness for the thousandth time, we're launching a devastating grenade into enemy territory. You can keep going to Jesus. Fascinated with him, preoccupied with him, believing that the gospel is real, that as far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed your transgressions from you. This is the truth of the gospel. So we've got to go live in all the good of what Jesus has done for us. That's what it means. We go live in all the good of what he's done for us. That's what it means to put on the full armor of God. That's what it means to stand firm. It's to, it's to be so preoccupied, so fascinated with Jesus, so trusting in Jesus that we go defend in response to his grace what he's entrusted to us. You fight in the armor that he's given you. So let's remember that this section functions as a command and a promise. It's a command to stand. It's a command to fight. But it's a promise that we only do that empowered by the grace of the gospel and the Holy Spirit that he's given us, which you just heard about, I trust, last week. One day, church, the fight's going to be over. You waiting for that? One day your faith will be sight. One day we'll be completely saved and transformed into the image of Jesus. One day our affections for Jesus, I can't wait for this day. One day our affections for Jesus will be so strong that nothing would take your eyes off of him. One day the presence of sin wiped out. No longer. Is anybody excited about that? One day, every competing thought or desire will be ousted. One day, we'll be freed from sin, and every act will be an act of worship fueled by 100% devotion and love and passion for Jesus. One day, all the warnings of Scripture will be gone because all the promises of Scripture will be fulfilled. One day, all we'll know is reward and happiness. And every act will be worshipful and not tainted even a little bit with sin. It's not like we'll go to heaven and then sneak down to hell for a good time. One day, our conversion will be totally complete. One day, Jesus will wipe, the scripture tells us, every tear from every eye. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until then, Trinity, we fight. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help these brothers and sisters to be strong in the Lord, to stand firm in the gospel, to fight the good fight of the faith, that we might please you with our ransomed, redeemed lives. We thank you, Jesus, for your salvation. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.